0: Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Sylvia Gallassure. Sylvia is an inquirer of our future, conducting foresight research on the future of health, well-ageing, social interaction, the future of work and lifelong learning, as well as transformations in mobility and retail. She graduated from HEC Paris in 2003 And she settled in San Francisco in 2005, where she has developed a special interest in the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Sylvia is involved in the future of our oceans and sustainability and supports positive ocean tech startups. This year, she focused her research on mental health and the home of the 2020s, developing a resilient housing framework and four archetypes of future homes. Welcome to Future Pod, Sylvia.
1: Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for having me here. And I have to say, I'm really fond of the show. I do get a lot of inspiration from you and your guests. So it's a true honor to be part of it today.
0: It's always great to hear from satisfied listeners, Sylvia. <laughs> so, as a listener, you know, the first question, which everyone enjoys, is of course, The guest tells their story. So what is the Sylvia Galliser story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community?
1: Mm -hmm. So, you know, one reason why I love the podcast is especially, you know, to hear the many ways that bring one person (laughs) to Foresight. (laughs) So, you know, the twists and turns in one's career or personal journey to futurism. So actually, on my end, it was not so straightforward from the start. I, I couldn't say I was meant for it even if I find it's a fun exercise now to reflect on my childhood or education and try to identify seeds of futurism in my background. So, so I was just thinking about a few anecdotes that, that come to mind regarding this, as to what shaped me as a futurist. Mm. And I'd say probably one, one of the main things that characterized me as a teenager growing up in France, uh, in the Paris suburbs, Was that I was thirsty for knowledge, thirsty for science, for culture. And it was both a fabulous driving force, but also a cause of, let's say, profound anxiety. Yep. Yeah, because driving force, you, you just want to ingest all the knowledge in the world at a time where there was no Google yet to reference it all. <laughs> so I would set goals and expectations to myself, such as reading a book per day or listening to a radio show every morning. We would go through the encyclopedia by then or watching investigative shows on, on TV I also wrote a lot in my journal to reflect on it. And I contributed to to the high school newspaper. And finally, I started working, uh, writing on internet even before blogs existed. Right. Because that was a way really you know, to digest and share with others what I had learned. As I say, it was also a cause of anxiety because these mountains of knowledge and the rows of encyclopedias at the library that was so intimidating I was wishing um, I could have a long life to be able to catch up with everything that happened in the world, and so I realized that discoveries and knowledge would were produced faster than I could uh, really keep up with learning about them, and so that's actually how I started dreaming about life extension and having parallel <laughs> lives. So I was desperate to follow what would become with humanity in the future, and with our Earth and uh, with the universe. And the second. Anecdote um, that comes to mind is around 14 or 15, I-, I discovered philosophy. Ah. Yeah, that was by then. It was really a true revelation because I had a, a phase where I wanted to build a political party based on philosophy and wisdom.
0: Aristotle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I have to say, France, because that's where I grew up, France was and and probably still is a very political country. People talk a lot about politics at family dinners with friends, at work with colleagues. And I felt that philosophy could be the answer to building such a better society. But I was quickly discouraged by people around me. Like the the message I got was that intellectuals think in their own ivory towers, While politicians, they they do the actual stuff. Another thing also is that in the European culture, we are still collectively wounded and traumatized by idealism, willing to build better, more equitable society, and how that led to some of the worst tragedy in history with communism and socialism in the last century. So we are very careful with utopian ideas that would be too close to forms of totalitarian systems. Yep. yeah so in addition to that I grew up in a family of engineers so with more Cartesian minds where we would observe phenomena and discuss the physics of everyday things on Saturday evenings you know my father would uh, make lecture about uh, liquids uh, physics and so on so I was pushed towards scientific studies and I have to admit <laughs> I cannot tell my father, but I have to admit today that I developed a taste for math and logics and physics. And I finally dreamed of becoming an astronaut. So once again, connecting with the world around us. So my father was a a computer scientist. We had internet at home very early on, uh, probably uh, um, 1994, 1995. And I would spend hours on it, uh, watching at pictures of the universe or reading about science. So... Just seeing this few, these few images uh, from, from my uh, youth, to sum up, I had myriads of interests and potential careers, but also a sort of paralysis to choose one single path. Mm. Because choosing one <laughs> would mean renouncing all the other options. So I really leave that impossibility to choose one vocation over the other as a frustration. And then, and that's probably one of the turning points that That's why I'm coming to this. Then I found a solution or at least a way to channel this multidisciplinary thinking or or to silence it for a while. So I was probably 17 or 18 and I came up with an idea of a series of books. So I had 10 books in mind. And in each of the books, I would explore one career. I would be astronaut in one, artist, philosopher, journalist, engineer, entrepreneur in one other and so on. But the rest of the world in the book would not change. So my perspective <laughs> on the book, on the world would change. The story would change, but the other characters and the world itself uh, in which these stories would happen would be fixed, sol- solely evolving if my narrator had an action on it. That meant a lot of world building to be consistent from one book to the other. And then my idea was that the last book of it all would be the key to the rest of the series, because by spending my whole life writing these 10 interconnected books and researching these careers, then I would be older and have become, well, a writer, which was kind of the encompassing vocation for all of. Those. I had kind of this. Prostian project, if I may say. So that was really how my mind was by the time. But I started writing it and then life happened, which means I needed a degree. I needed a real paying job. I needed a more stable career path. And so this project kind of ended up in a drawer for a while. So flash forward, (laughs) I finally opted for diverse studies a mix of math, literature, and social science a program in Paris. That led me to a business schools. you were mentioning, HEC Paris, and a specialization in management of arts and culture. And so for a while, I worked for uh, radio shows and uh, TV networks as a production assistant. And finally, I landed a stable consulting job at Accenture in strategy and product launch for telecommunication, media, and entertainment companies. Another twist (laughs) in the story, uh, in 2005, I had the opportunity to leave that stable job, to go live in San Francisco and uh, to work for the French embassy as a trade attaché.
0: Wow.
1: Specialized in audiovisual, once again. So back to, to, to what I liked. And from there, I haven't moved much. (laughs) I supported uh, technology companies in their international developments uh, as part of different government agencies, Business France, uh, French Tech Hub. And uh, about three years ago, uh, we created a startup accelerator with two co-founders called Big Bang Factory. But during that time, I'd say I advised probably 500 um, tech companies in their strategy for the US market. And I had them with fundraising, covering solutions from educational platforms, employee engagement interfaces, medical devices, sleep tech, or fall detection tools for the elderly, to, to name a few. And that's about, I'd say, four or five years ago, I started to notice that Our business strategy approach was too narrow-sided, and we were focusing so much on finding customers, finding uh, funding, on short-term profitability of companies, probably more around two, three years, that we ended up missing true signals of change and losing long-term vision. So I was interested in investigating foresight techniques, like really uh, having the methodology to be able to conduct foresight, to improve my strategy consulting practice. Took me a while. I finally got certified as an expert foresight practitioner with the Institute for the Future. And it all made sense. I could uh, finally reconcile, you know, my taste for science and technology My interest in social science and philosophy, my attraction to future thinking, and also my creativity and, you know, this scenario building taste or ability that I had. So, there it was, a profession that truly uh, valued multidisciplinarity.
0: (laughs) So, do you think about what book are you up to in your 10-book life series?
1: (laughs) Well, it's funny because I hadn't planned futurists uh, within the 10-book series. Uh, I had started with an artist and, uh, and <laughs> there was also the management consultants uh, within them. And then I haven't thought about it for a while. You know, it's probably been 20 years I haven't thought back about this series. But by, by investigating this, that question, I came back to this and I was probably, there was something around scenario building by the time. That is close to what I do today when I write future fiction and when I do world building to illustrate a scenario, for example. Mm. So I'm no, I'm no longer working on the other project, maybe one day. <laughs> but it definitely um, influenced the way I'm writing today or thinking today.
0: Thanks, Sylvia. Well, the second question is philosophical by nature. So I'd like you to talk to the listeners about a framework or an approach or a tool even that is central to how you do your future's work and uh, explain it to them. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about?
1: So I think there are two two aspects of the question. Probably there's the the philosophy or the framework, Mm. and then there are the tools. So I try to address uh, both questions. Eventually, after um, after the first step of my background that I was just uh, tracing for you, so I launched a research company uh, called Silicon Humanism, which focuses on examining our social nature and our human future and how technology is serving or hindering our species. And the idea, the philosophy behind that concept is to engage in a dialogue between science and technology on one side and humanities, history, anthropology, sociology, uh, philosophy, mental health and moral psychology on the other end. So the topics I investigate include well-aging, the future of work, you named a few of these topics. But in each of these futures, one of our core scenarios or core values consists in a technology supercharged world in which human beings still resort to social interaction, in-person interaction, or connection to nature. And there's one concept that I've been developing, which is the concept of tech-free bubbles or no tech lens that we want to live in once in a while. And we were talking about uh, dependencies uh, previously. I believe that at some point we want to be independent, to find back our status of independent human being. So uh, we resort to these tech-free bubbles. But coming back to the tools, as I was explaining, I have kind of have this double background, both in strategy consulting and then a more recent training as a futurist from Institute for the Future. So... I use most of their toolbox, uh, the insight to foresight to action framework, yep. uh, the scanning of our environment, analysis of signals, finding the drivers, uh, the production of scenarios and, and also artifacts until we build our future pledge or action plan. But once again, I reconnect that with business strategy. I, I really don't disconnect both, it's really two sides of the same thing. So what I've been doing is mainly uh, enriching my toolbox as a strategy consultant with the toolbox of futurists so that I can help my customers with their core challenges, be it about designing new products, evolving their workplace sometimes, or even elaborating uh, learning plans for their employees and so on. So that means I'm also influenced by my appetite for multidisciplinarity and my taste for social science on one hand, and my 15 years of strategy consulting on the other hand. So they, therefore, I really try to integrate the best, practice and best practices and most relevant tools from all these fields to develop my own uh, methodolo- methodological framework.
0: Scanning is a core part of the work we do, but scanning is a in my opinion, an idiosyncratic process in that people have their own ways of scan. I mean, do you want to just talk to how you set up your own scanning process? I don't mean for a specific piece of work. I mean just in terms of having a kind of framework and an approach to collect your sense of what's going on around you. How do you go about doing that?
1: Sure. Before starting scanning, which is usually one of the first steps of future is I really spend a lot of time on analyzing my topic. Let's say I wrote a piece on remote work recently. And even before scanning, what I do is conducting a multidisciplinary study. So I would go to the history of work. Mm -hmm. Actually, when did we start uh, working in the workplace? And it's something quite recent. So I I do all the looking back to look forward uh, thing. Mm -hmm. I include anthropological aspect also because I like to identify trends but also cycles or invariants. I conduct also the philosophical approach. So even before scanning, I like to have this basis of what is changing what is cyclic, what is invariant from this multidisciplinary point of view. And for example, I conduct it under the method of discipline I'm using. For example, if I do sociology, I would conduct a sociological study. And then uh, that's usually as a second step. uh, Then I I would really uh, scan for signals in the area I'm conducting. Of course, it happens at the same time. But I mean, in the methodological process, I can be a better a signal analyzer or scanner if I already know in what field I'm, what is already there before I start my scanning, what is invariant yep. once again. And to answer your question, I am actually really a radio listener. So most of my scanning comes from audio. I listen like three, four hours of podcast every day because that allowed me to go outside and to run or do some sports, uh, which I think is also another way of consuming information, just not from behind a screen. And so I listen a lot to everyday news. Let's say I love uh, the Daily from the New York Times, for example. I like also to listen about like news thoughts, like TED Radio Hour, Hidden Brain. Also, what is going on in the field of neuroscience, for example. So I would not just listen for news, but also what is going on in new theories, in new way of understanding the world, in new behaviors. Mm-hmm. Then I also, of course, observe a lot uh, the behaviors around me. I try to, to talk to people from all over the world. And I have to say that during the pandemic, it, it was much easier. But comparing uh, what's happening sometimes it's much more structured we we actually can do conduct survey with very specific questions to have also signals emerge from a majority of behaviors and then i log them i have my excel file uh, where i log all the signals i cross and it's very quick I, if there's a uh, there's a description there's a link uh, to the podcast or to the article And then it's what is the future trend behind and what is the change from what to what and what would happen if these signals were to be extrapolated.
0: That's great. Thanks, Olivia. Third question should be an interesting one for an inveterate and structured scanner like yourself. It's the question of the emerging futures around you and what you are sense making, what you are sensitive to, what's happening around you that really is getting your attention and getting you thinking. And you know, both from a optimistic excitement point of view and possibly even a fear or concern perspective. So
1: I love that question, and and it's a hard one. And if you don't mind, I, I will I will switch it the other way around. Probably what concerns me first, and what I'm hopeful about. <laughs> Because that's probably more the way it's structured in my in my mind. So I'm conducting quite diverse projects. I wouldn't say I'm the futurist of just work. Or I really try to conduct projects in different fields, bits about the home, you were mentioning it, about the future of work, about the future of mental health, and especially how it's been changing during the pandemic a bit, about ocean tech and so on. But most of the time, I would say these projects tend to point to two major aspects or two emerging futures. The first focus is linked to mental health and the pandemic has put it even more in the foreground. I'm really interested, once again, in our humanity and how we deal with change. So that's a big aspect for me. And the second aspect is linked to the role of technology in making us more human or less human. And this second aspect has been at the core of silicon humanism. From the start. If you don't mind, I will try to illustrate it with a project which is actually quite dear to my heart, which is well-aging. So well-aging as a portmanteau word between aging and well-being. So after working for technology companies in the field of technologies to support the, the elderly, I developed a training model on well-aging, which I based on a 360-degree a really a approach to aging and trying to show how biotechnology or communication technology can empower the elderly. And that's really one important aspect for me. It's I don't just consider the topic of aging from the technology perspective, but I really try to replace well aging into a more holistic perspective, a multidisciplinary approach again. Mm-hmm. Because first of all, I do believe that everybody can work on postponing their own aging with an appropriate lifestyle based on nutrition, healthy eating, physical activity and regular exercising, but also social bonding and uh, enriching community experiences, stimulating intellectual activities, creative and artistic expression, and also spirituality. And then, as a second step, we consider medicine and nutritive complementation as a prosthesis when lifestyle is not enough. And finally, third step, when advancement in biotechnology, robotics, uh, bionics, they intervene as a third stage for for individuals who have specific needs uh, following a genetic condition, a disease, or let's say an accident. So perhaps this last stage, and that's where a lot of people are scared, like, what is transhumanism going to do to our human species? So I do believe that this last stage is the last stage of the process. I wouldn't want us to to go for the easy transformation if we don't act as human towards changing our life, lifestyle for better well-aging, for example. Mm. And we have to know also that this last stage won't be available to all of us at first because it will be expensive. And there's a lot of inequality in, uh, in access to treatment or to what we usually understand in the, uh, with the, w- under the umbrella of transhumanism, but there is still a lot we can do to prevent accelerated aging and to help people get empowered over their own condition. So. I believe that this well-aging, this first level, this holistic well-aging can be available through awareness campaigns, ongoing education, or individualized support to improve our lifestyle. And when I like to imagine jobs of the future, uh, I'm thinking, for example, holistic aging specialist or well-aging life coach, something like that, because these professionals could help us go through the the full well-aging checklist and provide customized advice based on individual condition. So what I am scared about or or concerned about is probably what we hear at the current time around what Elon Musk is is, uh, trying to achieve with Neuralink or the promises linked to uh, brain computer interfaces, because they seem to be a major component of the future of the mind when we start to investigate this field. We project ourselves being able to control everything by our minds, not having to make an an effort anymore to express our will, to interact fully with the world. And it can be indeed a a wonderful prosthesis, I mean, for for people with paralysis or locked-in syndrome. But for the general population, we can wonder whether it is a direction we want our species to take. Do we want to end up being... um, you know, wandering mind in robotic skeletons? Don't we want to be like living bodies We can express themselves through their own moves made of organic materials and with five senses? And also, even in technology, one question I, I was discussing with, recently with other futurists is how can we continue to create VR material or mixed reality or, or BCI experiences if we are cut from firsthand experience of the world. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I am really hopeful, and that's the hopeful part, that we will continue to search for this tech-free bubbles that I was mentioning previously. The fact that sometimes we just want to disconnect. There's a, a, a whole movement of smart villages around community around making the cities accessible for the elderly so that they can still continue working in the cities. And it's not just about helping them at home in super smart home. It's also keeping them integrated within the society uh, so that they continue to be productive, to interact, and to develop their mind in a healthy, healthy way.
0: I'm challenged to imagine how We can do so much with, as you say, the biotechno extension to well-aging, but I keep coming back to the notion that access to these things is at present controlled through people's ability to effectively have money. And How do we avoid a situation, or can we avoid a situation, where we don't create classes of people who get access to this and other classes who don't?
1: So once again, when I think about these topics, I try to look into the past when new technologies arose in other fields. And let's just think about cars, like the first vehicles, personal vehicles, and how it was not accessible for everybody at first. Mm. So at some point, we need funding. We need people who pay and use the technology who test them also. And most of the time, indeed, it's probably either desperate people because, for example, there's a genetic condition and you will try a new new treatments, Or it can be people who are rich and who want, like Jeff Bezos, travel around the earth, for example. So first of all, it's not accessible to most people. But that will get the market started. And then it's also the law of supply and demand. The more and more people will be interested in it, the more and more we will produce of it and we will be able to scale and to have the cost um, uh, decrease so that it gets accessible to more people. Mm -hmm. So I have to say that in that field, at some point there's a market force that is at work to help it be accessible to all of them. Of course, then there are some lobby or or people who have kind of, as you were saying, an access to it or that are preventing others to have access to it. And there, I like to distinguish the scientific aspect of things and the social equality aspect of things. Because it's not because not everybody has access to it that we shouldn't develop it. I mean, as long as we think it's ethical, uh, that the technology enables an ethical development of our human society, we should push for scientific progress. And then in a second step, we think about social equality. And here, it's I think it's another kind of players who act in that field. It's lobbyists, it's politicians, it's activists, and it's not the scientists who can decide for this. And if, I believe, uh, if there's a technology that is truly revolutionary for the human species, then all these groups, all these activists uh, will push to make it more available to others. And maybe we will work with, um, with laws, with insurance to have it covered and to have it accessible to more people. But I like to, to really cut the debate in two parts, like scientific progress. Is it a progress for humankind from an ethical and technology point of view? And second step, how can we make it accessible to most of us? And these are other drivers, yeah. other people acting for that. I'd say
0: I'm going to keep pushing you because I think you're <laughs> a good. I think you can. I think you can handle a challenge. Um, <laughs> if we look back at the impact that science and technology had, um, and I'm thinking back to 18th and 17th centuries, how it it reinforced a a racial superiority over effectively for the societies that if you like, created the technology, they felt themselves superior, they felt themselves to be a a more significant human than the people who didn't have the technology. And and yeah, we look back at how colonization was often led by technology. And I wonder how do we prevent these technologies recolonizing indigenous cultural perspectives on things? Mm-hmm. Do you think it's possible that with the awareness of all technology has a set of embedded cultural and social interests.
1: <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. One of the things that's happening, say, so for example, in Australia, we're slowly, very slowly starting to honour and recognise the existence of an Indigenous culture that's been here for 70,000 years. And it's starting, it's well overdue, there have been tragedies on the way, but we're starting to to appreciate their knowledge of the landscape, nature, relationships they're starting to teach us things mm-hmm. how do we not extinguish that
1: mm-hmm. well that that's a, a really good and really tough question so i I wouldn't mean to sound like I have all the answers but I would say my position on this and that's why I I, I like philosophy from the start and I try to still keep an ethical point of view on what the future is going to look like once again in the realm of scientific progress. I do believe in ethical committees, in multidisciplinarity once again, because it's not just about technology driving change. And once again, uh, coming from this European culture, we are so scared about uh, this idea of superiority of some kind of So we are really, really, really scared about this. So that's why uh, when there's scientific progress, we need to have always ethical committees. And I believe these committees shouldn't be just made of people in the field of science, but really in the field of other disciplines. Uh, Let's say, for example, it can be if it's about treatment for kids, you have to have parents involved. You have to have people with this disease involved. Uh, you have to have legislators, lawmakers included in the field. And so not just a close field of scientists mm-hmm. thinking together, but really having as many different points of view as possible. And with culture, like the preservation of different culture. It's the same. You need to have anthropologists, you have need to have um, ethnologists, you need to have people living this reality involved in the conversation. It's not just about discussing their future without themselves, it's having them as part of, of the dialogue. So once again, I would say my my advice, my recommendation on all these topics is once again about multidisciplinarity. Because... Hmm it's always a way to balance different point of view with different types of analysis because I don't believe that just one analysis, one approach has all the answers.
0: Good. Thanks, Sylvia. Sylvia, how do you describe what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do?
1: Sure. Perhaps to answer this question, I need to identify first who doesn't necessarily understand what I do. And, and <laughs> I'd say there are probably three categories of people. There are the professionals with whom I have worked under another identity before and who saw me change careers then there are my family and friends who already did not know what I was doing before <laughs> and and then naturally there are my my prospects or my customers whom I need to serve with uh, my elevator pitch so uh, talking about the first category it, it was funny because coming from strategy consulting and business development uh, I made this change Whereas most of the people were looking for more customers or more funding, I was, okay, let's go on the other end and do better strategy before we move to researching uh, customers or funding. So my focus so far was really about finding customers, um, make, helping my customers make revenue, finding investors. And a major step in that process was what we call finding the product market fit. So the fits between the product they develop and the market that exists. And when I started pivoting and conducting strategic foresight projects, I did not get much enthusiasm nor interest from my former colleagues. I think many considered it a life crisis or temporary fad. So I have to admit, there's some confusion around the title too, because futurism sounds like science fiction or poem reading. And in Italy, I even got some questions about the art I was making, because that's an art movement in in Italy. (laughs) And once, (laughs) one former investor colleague actually asked how things were going and he told me oh I see you get a lot of traction with your new job I mean it's great what you do the future it's important <laughs> so what I realized was it was super supportive and nice but also a sign that my former business consulting community didn't really get what I was doing so yeah <laughs> what I did is I start I, I, I tried explaining it with their own terms from the entrepreneur investor community. And there's this uh, famous VC, Andres Hanorovits, who made the concept of product market fit famous, the one I was just mentioning. And then they evolved it into what they call product zeitgeist fit, so to have a fit between the spirit of the time and the product. Mm-hmm. So I would pitch my colleagues with a natural next step. I would say, okay, what I'm doing is product futures fit. Yeah. Developing product that will fit not just a target market or not just the momentum, but a future need. So that was a way uh, to introduce them to the pool of the, from the future and so on. And then there are my family and friends. So mainly with them, I try to illustrate what I'm doing. I try to talk about signals, explaining what are the signals. And it's funny because I I start getting genuine interest from my friends after this career change. And this concept of signals from the future that we were mentioning earlier, I think it's a really good marketing concept to explain to, to engage people around futurism. The idea that the future is already here around us, sparse and discrete, and that each of us could gather signals. And then I, I had friends sending me, uh, sending me news or signals and asking oh, me, oh, is it a signal? Is it a signal? <laughs> so
0: extended scanning was, network.
1: <laughs> exactly. So that, that was quite fun. Also the artifacts. I mean, people love the idea of artifacts. So it's, it's always yep. fun to talk about potential artifacts. And then the last category, I mean, my, my prospect and, and customers, people who actually pay for my services. There's also something funny when, when I sell my services, because I think that there's the value of what I, I sell, like the initial value proposition. And then there's what they actually get out of the experience, the actual value proposition. Hmm. And at first, they probably look for new approaches to conduct innovation. They want to challenge their way of doing their job, but they end up enjoying foresight as a team building activity or yeah. as a way to align their teams along a vision or an extracurricular activity for their caring development teams and so yes. on. So that, that's really interesting. And and I believe like somehow futurism brings colors to a corporate seminar that, That's kind of the new new thing to have in your corporate world.
0: The way I explained it to myself, Sylvia, was that talking about why we're here and what we could do releases, I think, the best part of our nature, our creativity, our purpose. Most people love the chance to have that conversation occasionally. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what I always found whenever I was doing a foresight process, a search conference or whatever else, that people would invariably start talking about themselves, their lives, where they were going, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, because traveling to the future is is quite appealing, right? So in the end, they, they enjoy like the visual aspect, the activation of their imagination, and they have the impression that you help them see or visualize or to sense the future. They like like the collective world building, the envisioning. And yeah, I have to say, sometimes I have these uh, these comments like, "Oh, you're lucky to do that as your everyday job." Because when you give them a glimpse of it, like it sounds exciting. I had friends actually telling me, "I, I want to, I want to change myself. I want to, to have the same career change."
0: Yes, it takes a lifetime.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> Thanks,
0: Sylvia. Last question, what are your perspectives on our post-pandemic homes, your latest research?
1: Thank you for, for that question. Indeed, I've, I've been dedicating so much time to that topic this year, and we have built a framework to think about it because the pandemic has redesigned our home landscape and transformed our everyday environment while accenting changes that were previously underway. And we noticed that two levels are now morphing. First, there are the structures, like the home design, Mm. materials, furniture, appliances, but also uh, what we call the intangibles, schedules, behaviors, mental health at home, social bonding at home. So we wanted to create a model that included both the structures the physical home, and the intangibles, what we call home life. So to conduct that analysis, what what we did was uh, mapping the future of the home along two dimensions. One of them would be the threat dimension. Is the threat coming from outside, such as pandemic, social chaos, economic crisis, ecological catastrophe, or war? Or is the threat coming from inside the home? Domestic violence, physical, verbal abuse, uh, toxic work from home environment or loneliness. So that was the first dimension, the threat dimension. And the second dimension would be uh, the reaction dimension. Do people and, and does the home help have a fragility reaction or resilient reaction? So we built a quadrant producing four archetypes of future homes. You'd have the toxic home, When there's a threat from inside, but the reaction is fragile, you'd have the bunker home. The threat is from outside, but the reaction is mostly fragile. Then you have the Tetris home, like the game Tetris. Mm. The threat is from inside, but you are resilient because you reorganize things. And then you have the safe heaven. Uh, The threat is mainly from outside, but the reaction is resilient. So, for example, within the toxic home, it would mean a hazard to the health of the individuals, uh, favoring toxic relationships. And if we refer to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the toxic home doesn't allow the individuals to meet their most basic needs, such as physiological needs or security needs or healthy Social interaction. And many signals point in that direction with the increase of house fires and child injuries during the pandemic, intimate partner violence increased as well, cruelty towards pets, depression symptoms, suicide rates, uh, medical ingestion, alcohol consumption, and obesity as well. So, to bring awareness around these topics and share a first level of resources, what we've been doing is I worked with a, a team of mental health professionals to create. Audio fiction simulating a pandemic home hotline for individuals to express their distress. But we would include in these fictions real resources. So that was a really meaningful project to illustrate the toxic home. But then, when the home presents a higher resilience to inner threats, that's what we call the Tetris home. And there it's all about flexibility, like more flexible floor plans, multitasking, mental resiliency, process streamlining. Or what we also like to call a community living as a we live space, you know, uh, comparing it to we work space. And whereas the toxic home is closer to uh, a collapse archetype of home, Mm -hmm. well, the Tetris home is all about constraints because... Of different constraints factors, such as the accumulation of homeland activities, cohabitation of family members uh, from different group age with different rhythm and needs, space constriction, time constriction, and senses overload, noise, physical proximity, and so on. Individuals develop adapt the home environments through different tactics, and among these tactics, well, you have the repurposing of home, of, of rooms of furniture, of apparels, of electronic equipment. You have quick design upgrades, mobility of objects and people, or sharing of resources, and timeout option, which means new rooms, new habits, and new designs. Mm. The Zoom rooms, the Zen rooms, the garage gym, and so on. So it's really interesting to connect the evolution of the intangibles uh, with the evolution of the structures, once again. If I had more time, I could uh, develop uh, the banker home and the safe he- heaven. But I can invite you uh, to ask me questions, separate from the podcast, if if you are interested. Maybe one conclusion on this is that one important insight from this study is that whereas for the past decades the design world was leaning towards more sustainable residential buildings. With, with the beginning of the 2020s and the pandemic, uh, we've been reminded that uh, in times of, of chaos, natural disasters, or economic crises, the core function of the home remains its capacity to provide shelter. Mm. So it has challenged us, uh, like the, the home design and all the industries, but it has also uh, revealed that we were unprepared. And after all, the pandemic is acting as a disruptor and driving uh, home designers to rethink trends, functions, and features of homes.
0: Now, it's, I think it's a good point. I mean, sustainability was always a nebulous term anyway because, of course, you had to ask the question, what exactly are you sustaining and what are you letting go? Yeah. And I think the pandemic has actually made us start to question, well, what is it we sustain and what is it we promote and what is it we try to prevent? It's the combination of promotion and prevention that creates sustainability, in my thoughts.
1: That's a good point. And what's fascinating, it's not just happening in the home. I I also worked on on the future of beauty for another customer. And we had kind of the same evolution from uh, sustainable beauty and everybody wanted to have a natural product to a return to product that already efficient, uh, that our first uh, lab developed with a lot of efficient features to make sure they are antibacterial, for example. So back to health before sustainability, Mm. health before uh, natural, or resilience in the case of the home before sustainable. And there's always this debate between What is a resilient home and what is a sustainable home? Because if you want the home to be resilient, for example, you will be uh, multiplying energy sources. But if you want your home to be sustainable oriented, then uh, you will try to limit uh, consumption of uh, energy and so on. So right now, uh, in the field of the home, at least, home designers are really thinking about a new way to think about sustainability in relationship to resiliency. That's a paradox that architects are now trying to solve.
0: Thanks, Sylvia. It's been great to catch up and have a chat and hear about your, uh, your journey through the 10 books. It sounds like you're, you're, cert- you're certainly sketching out the philosophy text, I'm pretty sure. But thank you very much for taking some time out to talk to the FuturePod community.
1: Thank you so much, Peter. That was really a pleasure. And and thank you for making me think back about that project. It was a really good opportunity and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much.
0: This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.